0: before but in a different kind of way um, how often have you looked around the world and you get this sense that you just you don't fit you feel different maybe you look different maybe your family is different uh, maybe you have skeletons in the closet Maybe you carry around with you secrets that you really don't want anyone to know. And most of all, uh, maybe you carry around within yourself this, this sense that you could never be loved for you. And if you've ever felt that way, you know that that's an impossible feeling. No one can live life feeling that way, questioning their love, lovability, or their belonging. And so if you've ever felt that way, uh, you, you know what happens next. You get to work. You get to work. You do everything you can to try to prove the haters wrong to prove yourself wrong, you, the worst suspicions you have about yourself wrong. And so you achieve, you, you try to be successful, you accomplish things, because no, no one hates a successful person. Everybody loves a success. Or, or maybe you, you serve others, you help others, because, I mean, who, who can hate someone who's helping them, making their life better? You become maybe a more generous person Uh, Maybe you find ways to contort yourself, to twist yourself into something, someone whom you believe can be lovable. You get to work to prove that you can be lovable, to prove that you can have belonging. But here's what you don't realize. Although this kind of works, it gets you what you want. Once you start, how do you ever stop? How do you ever stop and still have people love you? How how do you stop and not lose your belonging? See, See, the trap is, this is not sustainable. You cannot keep this up forever. And so what you started, you're now trapped in and you have officially crossed over into the Bermuda Triangle. Now, you've probably heard of the Bermuda Triangle. It's a real place, just like this. Um, It's a place that is said to be on this location in the Caribbean Atlantic that ships go into but never come out of, that planes fly into and they mysteriously disappear. It's a real place, but it's a place filled with myth and folklore and all kinds of hype. Kind of like Area 51, Stonehenge, Loch Ness. And yet, the truth is, although that this is a real place filled with lots of hype, and legend, uh, we're using this as a metaphor in this series, this, this infamous place that no one escapes from. We're using it as a metaphor to describe another place we all find ourselves in, a place that so many of us get lost in, a place defined not by the geographical borders, but defined by these borders of anger, fear, and shame. This week, we're going to talk first about shame. I've studied shame for the last few years, and and here's my working definition of what shame is. Shame is the painful experience. It's an experience, right? Uh, The painful experience of believing we are fatally flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'll read that again. The painful experience of believing we are fatally flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. If you think about that, there's probably been a moment or two in your life where you felt that, maybe a lot of moments. But what makes shame so tricky is that shame in our culture has become a blanket term to describe a whole lot of things, things that are not technically shame. Things like embarrassment. See, embarrassment, you know, something happens to you and it's kind of unfortunate, um, but it's usually an accident. It's no one's real fault. Embarrassment, although if you take yourself too seriously, it can be painful. It can be a painful experience. Here's what we know about, about embarrassment. It can also be a connecting experience. It can cause you to take yourself more lightly. It can bring you connection with other people. You can laugh at embarrassments, and it actually causes you to, to feel stronger bonds with the people around you. Embarrassment can be difficult, but, but it's, it's, not a, it's not necessarily a negative. Um, you take embarrassment, you add to it some malice or some Injustice, and you have humiliation, where someone intentionally tries to embarrass you, and there's not a good cause for it. Uh, Then you have guilt. Guilt can be a very healthy experience, especially for those of us who are people of faith. We know this, right? That when you suddenly are struck with with an experience of guilt because you've done something to sin against another person or to sin against God, that can be a healthy experience. It can drive you to more positive change to to make amends for what you've done wrong guilt is a sense that I have done something wrong and it can be very healthy but shame technically speaking is not the sense that I have done something wrong shame is the sense that I am wrong not that I've done something bad but I am bad because of something that's happened to me or something that I have done Shame is this sense of unworthiness, that I am unlovable, I'll never find belonging, that I am unredeemable. And you see, we, we, tie, we, we kind of use this term shame to blanket over all of these different terms. But really, when we're talking about shame, we're, we're only talking about this. Now, in sociology, I was a sociology major, in sociology, it is said that shame is an important social tool. It's it's something that we use in society to keep everyone playing nicely, to keep them working together. But even in sociology, I'm not sure that we're using the strict definition of shame. Uh, for instance, uh, just to show you what we mean in sociology, if you go into work and you go to the employee refrigerator and at about 11 o'clock in the morning before anyone else is coming in to eat lunch, you go in and one by one eat all of your coworkers' lunches, you are rightfully... Um, giving a reason for people to challenge your belonging, right? I mean, that's not okay to eat someone else's lunch if it's not your own knowingly to do that. Um, so maybe, maybe there's some, some you know, influence that you put on that person to, uh, to help them change. And you say, hey, if you don't knock it off, we're not going to be friends anymore or you're not going to work here. That's an example of of maybe the healthy sociological shame. You can take that a step further. If you go into work at 11 o'clock and you don't eat your coworkers' lunches, but instead you start eating your coworkers, that's a whole other problem. You've gone more extreme, and you'll be put out of society, and that's even harder to redeem. See, it's important for us to understand that our behavior has consequences. And, And when we're talking about things like guilt... Um, that's something that, that, that helps us understand, that our behaviors have consequences, that we can do things that will legitimately threaten our belonging to the greater society. That's what sociology means. But shame, in a more common sense, gets overused, doesn't it? Because we start to use shame to control people, to manipulate people, to get people to do what we want on all kinds of less important issues, and, and it works. Shame works. It's incredibly motivational. But it's always corrosive. It's never life-giving, even when you get the result that you want. See, shame is something we all experience, but it is something unequivocally that God does not want for us. And you see this in the scriptures. The scriptures describe, describe again and again that when you're in a relationship with God, you are free from shame. Psalm 34 says, those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame, See, it's not a result of what they do, but it's a result of this relationship with God. Uh, If you go back to the very beginning of time, you'll discover that being without shame was one of the features that described the perfection of living in the Garden of Eden. Look at this, Genesis two. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now I know no one wants to hear the word naked in church, but it's in the Bible, so you gotta deal with it, right? But but, but listen to this Adam and Eve They are completely exposed Physically, emotionally In every way They're completely vulnerable And yet Unlike us When we're vulnerable There's no terror there There's no fear there There's no shame there But once we left the garden Shame became a universal Human experience It became our reality But here's something else That's important for us to know As we start this off That Although we all experience shame, some of us experience it more acutely. For some of us, it's more of a a monopolizing force in our life. Uh, Back in January of 2019, we did a series called The Nine Paths. You remember it? Um, It's based on this, like two people. Okay. Gives me confidence in what I'm doing here, people. Um, It's built on this, uh, this ancient spiritual growth tool called the Enneagram. Nine different paths that we tend to walk as people, um, each related to uh, one of the seven deadly sins plus a couple. Uh, They came up with nine for that. Um, It helps us understand virtues and vices. But, but, But here's another thing about the Enneagram. It's divided into these triads. And these numbers, number two, the path of service, number three on the Enneagram, type three, um, the path of accomplishment, type four, the path of originality, these three are especially driven by shame. Shame's a universal human experience, but for some of us, if this is our path that we tend to walk, shame plays a bigger role in our journey. And yet for each of these, it looks a little different. They all deal with shame, but they try to overcome shame in a different way. So uh, for people who walk the path of service, when they feel shame, the sense of I, I, I don't belong, I don't fit because of who I am, because of what I've done, they immediately get to work, right? You get to work, and, and they get to work trying to figure out what people need and how they can be helpful and how they can serve people and how they can meet the needs of other people. Because if I can meet your need, then, then maybe you'll make me feel loved. Maybe you'll make me feel a sense of belonging, people on the path of accomplishment, same thing, they're driven by this sense of shame, I'm not enough, I'm not adequate, maybe there's something about me that's, that's broken or not good enough, and so they accomplish, and they say, but, but if I can be successful, if I can show you all the things I can do, if I can get to the top of the mountain, become the king or queen of the mountain, then maybe you'll have to love me, and maybe that will take away this gnawing sense of shame I deal with. People on the path of originality, they also deal with shame, they deal with it differently, they kind of lean into it. And they say, well, maybe I'm broken. Maybe, maybe there's something weird about me. Maybe there's something unlovable about me. But they actually take that and they try to make an identity, a positive identity of it. And they say, well, if I can just lean into this and if I can become an original, if I can become distinct, then, then you know what? Maybe I won't be for everybody. I won't be palatable to everybody, but I'll be palatable to somebody. Somebody will love me. Someone will appreciate me. I'll find belonging somewhere, even if it's just in a small niche group somewhere. You see, each of these three deal with shame... But they deal with it in a different way, but here's what unites all of them. They all believe that the way out of shame is through doing something. And here's a fundamental deceit that we, we all tend to fight, especially if you walk one of those paths. It's this belief that without doing something, that you, you can't ever find love or belonging, that your love and belonging depends on what you do. But I want you to know that's a trap and Jesus came to set us free from that trap Uh, now I want to take you to the ancient city of Corinth far away from the Bermuda Triangle this is all the way over in the Mediterranean Sea Corinth now Corinth is as you can see um right here this dot Corinth was a very important place in the ancient world it was an ancient seaport You can see they're very strategically located, um, very accessible. So they were an ancient seaport, lots of sailors, lots of commerce. But like a lot of commercial centers in the ancient world and maybe still today, Corinth was kind of a nasty place. The ancient ruins of the city of Corinth reveal a whole lot of brothels and a whole lot of empty booze bottles. In fact, in the Greek language, there was a verb, a verb that says uh, literally the infinitive of the verb is to Corinthianize, to Corinthianize. So it's kind of this, this term, and, and you can imagine that uh, to Corinthianize probably didn't mean to love your neighbor as yourself or to help little old ladies across the street. To Corinthianize literally meant in Greek to engage in sexual immorality. It is what Corinth was known for. And it wasn't just the city that was known for that, but the church that existed in Corinth kind of struggled with the same thing. If you look at Paul's two letters to the Corinthians, both in the Bible, uh, what you'll see is Paul's addressing the issue of sexual morality way more with them than any other church. It wasn't just a problem for the city, it was a problem for the church. So imagine now being a Christian from Corinth. Imagine how the rest of the world, the Christian world would have seen you Oh, you're from Corinth? You're one of those people, right? See, if you're from Corinth, you were a second class ruffian in the Christian community. You were the butt of jokes. You did not want your college age son or daughter to come home with with a boyfriend or girlfriend from, from Corinth. You know, no Corinthian fiancés here, please. And so, as a result of this, the church at Corinth was a community that struggled with shame. Both a sense that they, they were doing things that weren't helpful, they weren't life-giving, but they were also dealing with, with a lot of hate from the greater Christian world because they were, they were known to be an immoral people. So, so they dealt with an internal sense of shame, an external sense of shame, yet, yet I want you to look today as we jump into the beginning of this book at how very thoughtful Paul, the leader of the church, is about this reality. He acknowledges the reality of, of who they are, but he manages to do it in a way that he doesn't shame them. Instead, he gives them a way out of the trap of shame that they have been living in. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're actually going to start at verse 4. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now, again, if you're from Corinth, no one in the Christian world is thanking God for you. You're kind of the people that they just wish would go away. They don't want to know about you. And then he goes on, for in him, in Jesus, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Uh, Again, in Corinth, the mindset is you're deficient, you're lacking, you don't have what other people have. And yet Paul says, no, 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 according to what God has done, you've been enriched in every way. You've been enriched with all kinds of things. This was God confirming our testimony about Christ among you. People may not see Jesus present in you or they may question the sincerity of your faith, but we see it, we know Jesus lives among you. Therefore, he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Again, if you're from Corinth, all you can think about is how you lack, how you're deficient, how you're second class, you're not as good as everyone else. And yet Paul says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Uh, You might know that the book of 1 Corinthians especially talks about spiritual gifts in detail. and, And some people reason that Corinth might've been a place where God gave his spirit in extra measure, that the spiritual gifts were manifest there in greater measure than in other churches. Or it may just be that it was so shocking That other churches had them also, but it was so shocking that God's spirit would show up there and give them gifts. Either way, they feature prominently in the rest of the book. He says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Then he says this, and he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. Again, if you're from Corinth, no one's calling you blameless. You've got a pretty spotty record if you're from Corinth. Corinth. And yet he says, Jesus will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of his return. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, so Paul starts this off kind of how we'd expect. You know, These people are dealing with shame. They, they, they believe that they've got to hustle for their worthiness. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is at work in you. It's okay. He, he starts off great. And then things start to get weird. Paul goes off on a strange path We're going to jump ahead just a few verses, still 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things, in other words, you, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, still you, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Now, this is where it gets weird, right? I mean, you think, Paul never had kids, and it's a good thing, because he doesn't know how these self-esteem pep talks are supposed to go. This is not the template. This is not the pattern, we all know what the pattern looks like, at least those of us who are old enough, right? The pattern looks like this. Come on, say it with me. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's how it's supposed to go. Paul obviously didn't know about Stuart Smalley back in his day, he preceded him. Um, so so he, he says all this weird stuff. He says, You know what? You guys from Corinth, you're kind of trash. You're you're not wise. You're not powerful. You're not influential. You'll never be royals, right? He's like, "Who are you guys? You're lowly and you're despised. You are nothings," he says. And, And then, when just when you think, like, "Oh my gosh, Paul, what are you doing?" He interjects these three words that he repeats three different times: this phrase, "But God chose." So on one hand, yeah, it's true that, that you were not influential, you were not noble, you were not important, you were not wise, but but God chose, Paul says, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the, uh, the weak to shame the strong. God chose the inconsequential, those who are nothing to shame the the some things. And it may sound strange to hear God, God shaming people and, and what Paul just means by that. Again, what Paul means by that is this great reversal where God, he takes those who are lofty and he brings them low and he exalts those who are humbled. In other words, what Paul is saying is, hey, you know what? You think you're weak and you're worthless and you're gross and you're unlovable? So what? God chooses the worthless. Some of God's favorite people are gross people. God actually has a soft place in his heart for the weak. God loves the unlovable. It's a weird pep talk, isn't it? For a group of people who are dealing with shame. But, but, but what if we took this approach, the approach of Paul, the next time we were dealing with shame in our own lives or we were helping someone else through it. What if instead of jumping on the treadmill, the moment we felt accused, the moment we felt unworthy and saying, oh, I just got to hustle for my worthiness. What if we actually took Paul's counsel to heart now it may sound harsh it may sound like an absolute self-esteem killer to to admit these things to yourself but I think it's the only chance of relief because we all know what happens when you get on that treadmill you start working hard and people look at you and they go "Ooh, look at you you're amazing and deep down here's what you're thinking you don't know the real me Even if you can sell everyone else in the world on your worth and your value and your lovability, you're the hardest person in the world to sell about that. We're not sold. And we know there's only a matter of time, no matter how hard we work, before other people see what we know. And so what if instead of even going there, because it doesn't help, what if we decided to agree with our worst fears about ourselves? The worst accusations that we have in our mind what if we were willing to say you know what maybe i am weak maybe i'm not smart maybe i'm not very good at anything maybe i'm not even a good person maybe that sounds like the ultimate ego killer like that would crush me i'd i'd I'd, you know be ground to bits but maybe that's actually the way to freedom See, think about it this way, if if I don't have to worry about my next achievement, if I don't have to worry about my next sale, my next promotion, my next housing upgrade, my next new car, if I don't have to worry about my next selfless act, my next service opportunity to make you like me, my next, you know, whatever, if if I don't have to fret about my next big mistake, my next sin, if if I can just simply say, you know what, there's some ugly stuff in me. There's some bad stuff inside me. I do bad things, but but mystery of mysteries. God likes me anyway. What if we could sing the old hymn just as I am without one plea? What if we could sing that and actually mean it? That people who are imperfect, people who have no cause to be loved, that in fact God loves us anyway that we are his preference. See, isn't that although it sounds crazy, isn't that the path to real freedom? Which is exactly what Paul is doing. It's exactly what he recommends. He's, he's just saying, you know what? I'm not gonna argue with you about all the things that you've got working against you, people of Corinth. I'm not gonna argue the case, and I'm not gonna put you, set you up to have to believe that, that you're better than you really are. Instead, I'm just gonna agree with all the things about you, but I'm gonna tell you something else. It is because of Jesus, because of God, that you were in Christ Jesus. See, see, God doesn't want you living in shame, Paul says. And so in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ into the world. It's because of God's mercy to you that you are now in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, not just wisdom in any sense, but specifically, this is how he defines wisdom. That is, Jesus has become our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Circle that word, our, right? Our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus came into the world not just to be holiness, righteousness, and redemption, but to become our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Paul's saying, you know what? If you can just agree with all of these things and realize those aren't the rules of being loved, those aren't the rules of belonging anymore. God has provided another way, and it's through Jesus. That's your freedom, from busting your hump to try to earn your love, your love and, and your belonging. Therefore, he says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, not boast in their accomplishments, not boast in what they can do for others, not boast in their uniqueness, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, today, um, we're celebrating this weekend. It was yesterday, again, um, Halloween, also known as Reformation, little over 500 years ago, a monk, a priest, by the name of Martin Luther, decided, um, really God in his mercy revealed himself, and, and so he got off his own treadmill, this treadmill of, of trying to earn love and belonging of, of his overseers in the monastery, ultimately learning, earning the love and belonging of God. He decided to get off the treadmill because he made an important discovery that the scriptures teach that we are saved by grace, undeservedly, that we're saved through faith, not on account of our works, and we're saved on account of Jesus, by grace, through faith in Christ, on account of what Jesus has done. He, he discovered that the scriptures teach that the righteous people aren't people who live perfectly. They aren't the people who are blameless. The righteous people are people who claim the promises of God. The righteous shall live by faith. That's what he discovered. And when he made that discovery, the freedom that he found once he got off the treadmill and said, oh my gosh, there's a different way to find love and belonging. It, it lit a fire in him and he had to tell the whole world about it. And he turned the world upside down with his teaching because there was a whole society built on the foundations of shame and keeping people stuck in shame. And that's where power and money had their had their foothold. And, and he began to set people free from that. And there was a revolution of freedom that we are still heirs of today. And about 20 years ago, um, they made a a movie, I think it was about 20 years ago, about Luther's life. And um, in this movie, there's this one scene in particular, and it has always compelled me. It is shortly after Luther made this discovery that, you know what, so what if I'm not perfect? So what if I'm not impressive? So what? God chooses people like me. And God loves me. And, and those things are the standard of my belonging. He, there's this moment in the, in the movie shortly after he makes this discovery where he begins to preach differently. He begins to preach the truth. And so I wanna show you this scene. He's in a mass in a church uh, leading a mass and he he's, comes to the homily, the message, and he begins to preach this very thing we've been talking about today, a path to real freedom, getting off the treadmill and finding real love and belonging. And I want you to hear what he says, powerful words. And I also want you to notice, just kind of as a side note, how um, alarmed everyone is in the congregation the moment their pastor, the priest, leaves the pulpit and begins preaching from the aisles. They don't know what to do. Take a look. Terrible, unforgiving, that's how I saw God. Punishing us in this life, committing us to purgatory after death, sentencing sinners to burn in hell for all eternity but I was wrong. Those who see God as angry do not see him rightly, but look upon a curtain as if a dark storm cloud has been drawn across his face. If we truly believe that Christ is our Savior, then we have a God of love. And to see God in faith is to look upon his friendly heart. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is there, I shall be also. the devil throws your sins in your face, tells you you're worthy of death and hell, say, what of it? Instead of fighting against, instead of trying to prove the haters wrong, instead of trying to prove the inner voice in in your mind that tells you you're unworthy wrong, what if we took his advice and, and we agreed with the worst things that we believe about ourselves? And what if we said, yeah, so what? In the end, God chose me Anyway, that must mean something. Um, All throughout my uh, life growing up, I sought to be a good kid. And uh, that meant that I got really good at achieving I tried to be impressive to my parents, to, to be the, you know, the kid who did better than the other kids in the family. I was always the one striving to get my teacher's attention and focus. I, I wanted to be the best of the best. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to be seen as helpful. Um, I, you know, I, I, I tutored people in high school, people I didn't even like just to help them for free. I, I wanted to be liked, I wanted to be helpful. But, but I remember this moment as I got late in my teen years where I specifically had to sit down with my dad and I had to own up to some things that I didn't want my dad to know about me. And what you have to understand is, is so much of that drive to achieve and to, and to excel and to be liked, uh, that was for people, but a lot of that was for my dad. I, I really wanted to earn his approval and I thought that performing my way to, to his approval was the only way that I was ever gonna get it. And so I remember this moment where I finally had to own some things to my dad that I didn't want my dad to know about me because I had carefully crafted this image of, of who I was and I was terrified of what my dad would say if, if he knew the, this other side of me. And I remember the night, it, it was actually, it was actually um, October 30th. I mean, it was right around this time of year. And, and I remember the night where I sat down with my dad and, and I, I shared with him some of this stuff and, and we had a conversation about all of the things you'd expect to happen, you know, a father to guide his son and to, and to warn me and to encourage me. But before my dad said anything else, after I'd laid my heart open before him, I remember what my dad said. He said, he said, Dion, you're my son. And I love you no matter what. And nothing you do, good or bad, will ever make me love you more or less. And in that moment, it's like the heavens opened up and I finally understood what, what I had been reading in the scriptures, what Paul had been trying to tell me, what, what Luther preached about. I finally got it, that, that when we're talking about shame and this definition of shame, the first part is still true. The, the way out of shame is not to ignore the first part, the painful experience of believing we're fatally flawed. That's still true. We're fatally flawed, all of us. And if you're in denial about this, you're still in about yourself you're you're just in denial exactly that this is true and we need to own this but owning this doesn't mean we'll become prisoners to shame because although the first part of this is true on account of Jesus on account of of God's love for us the second part is no longer true yes we still know and are aware that we're fatally flawed but that no longer has any impact on our love or belonging on account of Christ we're loved on account of what Jesus did for us, we have guaranteed belonging in the family of God forever, and nothing we do, good or bad, will ever change, that nothing will ever threaten our place in God's family again. See, see, what if the next time the devil came accusing us, people came accusing us, instead of jumping on the treadmill, what what if we just pleaded for the mercy of Christ? What if we claimed what Jesus did? And what if, what if, we as the body of Christ... What if, what if we stopped burdening each other with the burden of making people perform perfectly in order to find love and belonging here? What if we stopped saying to people, the moment you mess up, the moment you cross a line, you're out of community. What, what if instead we helped them understand this too, that although we're fatally flawed, that on account of Christ, because of what he's done for us, no longer means that we're unlovable or without belonging See, what if we could believe that for ourselves? What if we could own it? What if we could agree with all of the accusations but say it doesn't matter because God chose me? I'll tell you what would happen. If if we could do that for ourselves and for each other, a whole bunch of us would find our way out of the triangle. We'd find freedom. And so today, here's what I want to give you, especially if you're someone Who struggles with shame if if you know the whole bit of of running yourself ragged on the treadmill to try to find love and belonging here's what I want to encourage you to do the next time you find yourself feeling accused and, and you want to go back to the treadmill you hear the voice of the devil in your head accusing you instead of arguing instead of trying to prove yourself as something else agree and simply use the words of Paul. Make this your affirmation. You feel foolish? Okay, God chose the foolish things. You feel weak? God chose the weak things. God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the nothings. God has chosen me. And it wasn't a hasty choice. It was a very thoughtful, deeply loving intentional choice no matter what I believe about myself the reality is God believes something different and he has chosen me and that's where freedom begins let me pray God in heaven I pray right now especially for the people who are living in shame the people for whom the the devil is speaking so loudly in their ears reminding them of all their sins of all their brokenness of all their defects of all of their mistakes of all of their struggles God, I wanna pray for those for whom they believe that because of those things, they don't belong, they can't be loved. Certainly not as members of your family. And Lord, I pray that you would silence the devil, but also give us the courage to agree with whatever we need to agree with, to say, yeah, okay, maybe so. God, give us the understanding of what Jesus offers us, that through his sacrifice, through his death on a cross, We have the guarantee of love and belonging. God, show us that our belonging and our love is not a function of what we do. It's a function of what you have done on our behalf. And that mystery of mysteries, we can stand before you naked and vulnerable and exposed and you still love us. More than just loving us and tolerating us, you've chosen us. Thank you, Father. Drive that home to all of us today, especially those of us who have been paralyzed, who've been trapped for far too long in shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.